All right, today, like I said, Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7. Let's read it together, starting in verse 1, if you just would follow along with me. Paul the Apostle writing uh, said, I mean that the heir, to kind of pick up a previous conversation, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because, verse 6, you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, verse 7, are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for the truth that the gospel, belief in it, turns us into your children, here, sons of God. Lord, we thank you for that truth, we thank you for that reality, and we pray that we'd be able to embrace you as our Father. Help us, Lord, in those moments where we put on a different lens with which to look at you. Help us, Lord, to see you instead as you present yourself in the word as our loving, good, gracious Father because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. So I pray, Lord, for that, and I pray that you'd use this Bible study, this time in the Word, to solidify this in our hearts to a greater degree. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, I think that this text wants us to ask two questions about ourselves and our relationship with God. I think the first question that it wants us to ask is the question, do I think of God as my Father? Uh, Am I convinced that he's made himself my father? Do I think of him as my father? And then the second question is the question, do I feel that God is my father? Do I experience him as my father? Is is that the, the experience of my life and of my heart? In a sense, the whole passage, all six verses before the seventh, are here to explain the seventh verse. Uh, The seventh verse says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son because of the gospel, and if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've believed the message of the gospel, you have been transferred from slavery into sonship. You are now a full heir of God because of your connection to Jesus. Not just in the distant future, one day I will be a son, but right now, currently, you are an heir of the Father. Uh, So what Paul wants us to think of ourselves as in this passage are as full-grown, full-blown recipients of God's inheritance. Uh, The way he describes it in verse five is that we need to know that we uh, are adopted as sons. Now, A couple things about that little three-word phrase, adopted as sons. One is, and you might have 
been gone a couple of weeks ago when I talked about this, there's a question that might raise up in our minds of why didn't he say we're sons and daughters of God? Uh, but for him to say sons of God was actually appropriate because in the time that Paul was living in, only sons received an inheritance in the Roman family. And since Jesus is the son of God and he transfers his position to us, it makes sense that we would be called sons of God in this, in this passage of scripture. So it's not that we aren't sons and daughters of God or children of God. It's that positionally, this is good news because we're all recipients, men or, and women, of the full-on inheritance that comes in Jesus. Uh, but again, that's what Paul wants us to think of ourselves as full-grown, adopted, full-blown recipients of God's inheritance. Now, to illustrate this, he gives us an example in the first three verses of our passage. He talked about this thing about an heir who is still a child and how that child has the same experience in life, practically speaking, as a slave, uh, we all recognize this just in our own life and upbringing. You know, when you're young and a child, though the family might have money, though the family might have property, you know, you're living in it, but you're under all sorts of rules and regulations. But in the Roman society, a moment would come where a father would say, this child is now transferred into adulthood. They get the rights of the property, the rights of the inheritance. I'm bringing them into that full recognition that they are now a full-grown son in my sight. What Paul is saying through this illustration is that we also, before the gospel came into our lives, we were like children who had not yet received that full adult sonship before God. We were, Paul said in verse three, enslaved to something called the elementary principles of the world. Now through the rest of Galatians, Paul makes it clear what he's talking about when he says that we used to be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He says things like humanity was enslaved under sin or that humanity was trying to approach God through the works of the law, or that humanity was subjugated to the law, that humanity was wrestling against the curse and wrestling against brokenness, that humanity, as our text says, was under a guardian and totally enslaved, that humanity was trying to observe regulations and ceremonies in an attempt to be approved by God. I think all of these phrases throughout all of Galatians are Paul's way of describing the elementary principles of the world. He's saying these were the basics, but when the gospel came into our lives, we graduated from those elementary principles and were set free in and by him. We've been brought into, in other words, full sonship before God. Now, through the gospel, according to Paul, God is our good father. And that's why I think that the text then pushes us to ask these two questions. Do I think of God as my father? And do I feel that God is my father? Okay, for that first question, do I think of God as my father? We have verse four and five together. Let's read it again. Paul said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is Paul's way of encapsulating very quickly just some of the amazing things that God did in order to make us into his sons, to provide a way for us to become the sons of God. Uh, you guys know that this Tuesday is Valentine's Day, right? This is a little heads up for all the husbands that are in the house today. Tuesday, 48 hours you got to play with. Uh, but that means that it's a season for terrible romantic comedies, right? You guys remember that romantic comedy that came out in the 80s, Say, Say Anything, with John Cusack? There's this iconic scene in that movie where he's just like brokenhearted. He's pursuing this girl. And so he goes outside of her room, I think it is, and he's got this boom box. And uh, he, pl he plays the, the thing In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel in his boom box wearing a trench coat. I think it might have been raining. I don't know. It's just the whole thing is meant to communicate, look at this guy. Look at what he is willing to do to try to get the girl. He'll do anything. He'll even put a tape in a tape deck and play it up in the air, wearing a trench coat of all things. He'll do anything to get the girl. Of course, I'm joking, but this passage, it shows us what God was willing to do to get us. And it's much more than that character in that movie was willing to do. There are three things I want to point out to you that God did to make us into his sons. The first thing that God did was send forth his son at the perfect moment. In fact, God created the perfect moment. In the text, Paul calls it the fullness of time. The son came at the fullness of time. What does that mean? Well, it was the historical fullness of time for one. You think about when Jesus came, he really did come at the perfect moment for the expansion of the gospel. The Roman Empire had forced a peace upon the known world that allowed people to travel back and forth. They built a elaborate road system that enabled people to go wherever they wanted to go. And the Greek language was the common language in the known world. So when Christians in Jerusalem began to receive Jesus and the church, as we sang earlier, was born, they were able to go to the entire world preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. It was the perfect moment that God himself had organized for his son to come. But it wasn't just a historically perfect time, but a biblically perfect time as well. Daniel chapter nine seems to indicate that Jesus had to arrive in the exact year that he arrived. Psalm 22 indicates that when the Messiah came, he needed to come during a time when capital punishment was carried out through the means of crucifixion. And of course, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and many generations of Israelites were looking forward to the one who would come to crush the serpent and cause them to be a blessing to all nations. There was a biblical hope and tension and desire and timing for the Christ to arrive. But I think beyond the historical and biblically uh, biblical nature of Jesus's timing. There's also just the divine point of view. 
Why did Jesus come when he came? Because it was the fullness of time when it came to the heart of God. God wanted the Son to come in that moment. You might remember in the Old Testament, there's a story of the Exodus in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for many years, not at first as slaves, but as residents. They were working alongside of the Egyptians, taking care of a portion of Egyptian territory, but slowly their residency turned into slavery, and that slavery caused them to cry out to the God of their ancestors. And they cried, and they cried, and they cried, and God waited and waited until finally he raised up Moses, took his time developing Moses, and then brought Moses into Egypt to deliver the people of Israel from their captors. Why was that the moment? It was the moment because God was ready. God's heart was prepared. He was ready to rescue. And I think that's one of the first things we need to see about what God did to arrange for us to become his children. He established the perfect moment. But the second thing that God did was he sent forth his son, it says in verse four, to be born of woman, to be born of woman. Now we know from other passages of scripture that when Jesus was born, he wasn't just born of a woman, he was born of a virgin named Mary. It's a miracle, it's an amazing and glorious story. But here, Paul doesn't mention that Jesus was born of a virgin, he says she, he, he was born of a woman. Because his goal here is not to highlight the glorious nature of the virgin birth. His goal here is to highlight that Jesus had a mom like all of us. And that when Jesus came, he was born not as God who was above us, but that he became one of us, that he became a human. It's a jaw-dropping truth. The, the concept that he is fully God, yet fully man, a divine mystery that theologians call the hypostatic union. And it is incredibly good news that God became one of us. The reason it's incredible news is because humanity through sin became broken. And in order for us to be compatible with God, which is our design and nature and build, we need to exit an old humanity and enter into a new humanity. But in order to become part of a new humanity, you know what we needed first? We needed a new human. All of us, when we were born, were born into Adam. He's the old human. But Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, he creates a new humanity so that when we believe in him, we exit the old and we enter into the new that God has created. But not only did God send his son as a human, it also says in verse four and five that God sent forth his son to get us out from underneath the pressure of the law. It says in verse four and five that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. What that means is that when Jesus was born, he was born to all the obligations of the moral, mental, emotional, conscience-based and oriented 
natural and written law that God had established. He was required to obey all of it. And he did obey all of it in total and complete perfection from the very beginning to the day that he exhaled his last and final breath. Jesus was like every single human born under the law, but unlike every single human in that he succeeded in keeping every last part of the law. Then after Jesus fulfilled the law, he rose from the dead in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in everyone who believes and trusts in him. In other words, Jesus satisfied the law, satisfied God himself on our behalf. All this is to say that God worked and God engineered the means whereby we would become his sons. He did all these things so that, verse five, we might receive the adoption as sons. God orchestrated history, God sent prophets, God commissioned his son to be born of a woman. He found a way for the law to be satisfied and fulfilled in his sight. Jesus, God did all of these things for us. And all these elements that Paul detailed here, they're meant to show us what God did to connect to us. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, as Jesus told it, the father is portrayed as seeing his son returning from afar, casting off his garments, commanding that a feast be prepared, and running to his son, putting the family ring upon his finger. He did everything that he had to do to bring his son back home. That's the God that we have. He ran for us. He sent for us. He engineered a way for us to come home to him. As the text says, we are no longer enslaved We are no longer children. We are now full-grown, full-blown adult heirs in the sight of our God. Uh, Next week, we're gonna continue on in Galatians, and we're gonna think about how often as Christians, one thing that we're tempted to do is go back to a law-based, works-based relationship with God. It's not God's heart. It's not his desire. He did all these things to bring us into a father-child relationship with him. Uh, But it's our tendency at times to go back to that work-based thing. But what I'm saying here is that we have to believe that he is our father. We have to think that he is our father. And Paul gives us some great truths to help us consider why this is so. But the most important thing I want to show you today or the question I want to look at today is that second question, do I feel that God is my father? I'd be willing to bet that many of you as Christians, you walked in here today, and if I were to say, do you think that God is your father? Knowing the gospel as you do, knowing the Bible as you do, you would say, yeah, I I think that God is my father. But if I was to ask you, do you feel that God is your father? There might be more of you that would say, though I think he's my father, I'm struggling to feel that he's my father. I I feel a distance. I feel that there's a gap between me and him. I realize that it's probably a little different for you to hear me talking about feelings. I think sometimes in church we 
uh, always talk about feelings in, in a negative kind of way. Oh, feelings, you gotta have faith before feelings, or you gotta have fact before feelings. You know, feelings are always supposed to take a back seat. But what I wanna show you here is that it seems that the Spirit is concerned that we feel that God is our Father. Look at what he says in verse six. He says, and because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, what, what this verse shows us is that God is discontent with merely positioning us as his sons, or even merely having us think intellectually, or even by faith that we are his sons. He also wants us to feel, to experience that we are his sons. And the, the way that he does this is by putting his spirit into us, and the spirit within us cries out back to the Father, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an interesting uh, word. Uh, it means something close to daddy or papa in our language. And another thing that's interesting about it is that it's not part of the Greek language that Paul wrote his letter with. It's Aramaic. It's the same language that Jesus would have used when he prayed to his father, which I think is telling. Since we are made into God's sons, it makes sense that the Spirit would drive us to pray in a similar way to the very Son of God when he walked the earth. So what Paul is saying is that the Spirit residing within us cries out to God from within us as our Abba or our Father or our Dad. In other words, the Spirit puts a Godward urge inside of us but it's a Godward urge that thinks of God in a specific way, that he's our good father who cares for us. I understand that as I'm saying this, it can sound a little bit mystical. You know, the spirit inside of you crying out from within you to God the Father. But to me, this is the thrust of the text. This is what Paul is saying. God the spirit is within God's children helping them cry out to God the Father. Even in other words, when our sinful flesh is running away from God with some practice or some thought or some pattern, we can't be satisfied with it if we're truly believers in him and have been regenerated by him because the spirit is inside of us pulling us back in the other direction. We can't be happy with anything but him. No matter how faint the spirit cries within us, he's calling out to God for us, teaching and training us that we are God's children. So all this to say, God wants you to know that he's his father, to think, to think that he is your father, but also to experience him as your father. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I believe that this is part of the reason that we're so impacted and even hurt by our earthly fathers. We're designed, in other words, to have a good father, uh, but no human dad completely measures up to the ideal that only God himself can satisfy. 
Every earthly dad has his flaws. They're merely, at best, a shadow of the true definition of father, the one that we have in God. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he has a, a, a bit where he compares dads to a day-old helium balloon that is floating around the house, halfway between the ceiling and the floor, just kind of, we don't know what dad's here for, it's all about mom, we don't know what he thinks or what he's doing or what he's saying, uh, but he's just, we do know that he is there. And I think for a lot of people, that's the image that they have when they think about their earthly father. Look, it's not that God was up in heaven thinking to himself, how do I communicate to them who I am to them once they believe in me? And then saw all these dads walk in the face of the earth and said, that's it. They are doing what I want to do someday for my people. So I will call myself after them. No, it's that God is saying, I am what no man on earth is ever going to be in total perfection. I am the true Father in heaven. I believe that our desire for our earthly fathers, I think it should serve as a signpost that we are designed for a relationship with God. Our culture is very infatuated with the idea of dad and his impression on our lives. Uh, how was your childhood? What was your relationship with your dad like? We're often asked. And I think that this is, at least in part, some of the reason why so many in our culture try to answer the problem of the chaos that many evil men have created here on earth with trying to destroy the structure of the family in the first place. Well, apparently, we don't need this. It's not working. Let's redesign it. But our desire for our dads, the hurt that can be caused by our fathers, to me, it should point us to the ultimate desire that we all have to be reconnected to God. He's the father. He's the one in the beyond that we need to connect to. I've told you that I love the movie Interstellar before. And there's this classic moment in the, about the halfway mark of the movie, so about three hours in, when Anne Hathaway's character, a scientist astronaut named Dr. Brand, uh, she wants to go, they're trying to decide what planet to go to to help our species survive. And she doesn't know why, she doesn't have reasons, but she wants to go to a specific planet with another scientist on it named Dr. Edward, Ed Edmonds. And the only reason that she can offer for why she wants to go in that direction is because she's in love with him. That's her only reason. Her heart is drawn there, and she says, it must mean something. She says, love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends the dimensions of time and space. I believe that our desire, our love for our fathers is actually meant to point us past the dimension of our time and space into the reality of God. So that's what God wants for us. He wants to father us. Now this father-son relationship, in some ways, I think if we're honest, uh, 
it's scarier and less certain and certainly much, much more relational than the guardian-slave-works-based relationship that we had when under the law. You know, under the law, you kind of know how to grade yourself on any given day. Under the law, you're able to say, today was a good day, I performed well, or today was a bad day, I, I didn't perform well. But in a relationship with your father, you're continually going to him for his words of affirmation and comfort and encouragement simultaneously mixed together with his challenges and corrections and guidance that he'll give into your life. There's a vulnerability, in other words, that's required in this father-son relationship that God has designed for us. Under a legal code, under a works-based way of doing things, we know how to react to our behavior, either celebrate it or be demoralized by it. But God has something far better for us through the cross. We're his children. A relationship with God as our father is unlike any relationship you've ever had with a teacher or a leader or an employer or even any parent that you've ever known. God isn't grading you. He's not considering replacing you. He doesn't weigh whether to give you a raise or not. He doesn't fly off the handle at you. It's a different type of relationship than we're used to. Uh, recently, I was just trying to, um, in a time of prayer, I was trying to pray through uh, the psalm that Riley read a little bit earlier, Psalm 23. And I got stuck on the first line, the Lord is my shepherd. And I was just talking to God about that. God, you are my shepherd. You, you have always led me. You have always guided my life. You, you've always defended me. You've always provided for me. That's what you are in my life. But as I was praying these things, I had this moment of clarity that, oh, in this picture of you as the shepherd, I am the sheep. And I'm sure you've heard it said before, but sheep aren't the most powerful beings. They're not the most intelligent beings. They're very de dependent creatures. They need someone else to provide for them. They need someone else to defend them. And as I thought about that, what I realized was my father in heaven is not waiting for Nate Holdridge to graduate on this side of eternity, at least, from his sheepdom. He's not, wait, he's not sitting there in heaven like, you know, I'm, I, I know I wrote Psalm 23 and everything, uh, and I know that when my son came, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know all of these things, but gosh, you are tiring, and I'm really waiting for you to become more self-sufficient. I'm waiting for you to become stronger, more defensible. I'm waiting for these things to happen in your life to no longer be a sheep, but to be something other than that. No, my father in heaven, he loves the foolish, clumsy, easy pickings, Nate Holdridge, just like he loves all of you. Now, some people in thinking about this doctrine that I'm talking about today, the divine fatherhood of God, some people will say, and you'll hear this from time to time, that if you've had a terrible human father, you can't possibly understand this doctrine. Or that if you've had an absent earthly father, you can't possibly understand this doctrine. Now, I've tried to already say that there is no earthly example of this that is sufficient to, 
describe the way that God does it. So even the best dad in the world is not the perfect example of what God is like. But I think I'd like to add to that conversation that quite often we learn what is right by observing what is wrong. Many of you have heard this said or maybe even said it yourselves uh, in marriage. I've talked to many young couples who have said something like, you know, this is the way that our parents did things. And we didn't like seeing that. There, There was this fatal flaw in their marriage. We'd like not to repeat that. How did they learn that? Because they saw the right example? No, but because they saw the wrong example and instinctively they knew that's not working. There's got to be something better. They've learned by contrast. And I believe that we all have, through even contrast, an ideal version of Father God in our mind's eye. And the point is that God the Father measures up. He's the perfect Father that we've all desired. And the full Trinity is involved in trying to make this real to us. The Father is ready to do his fathering work. The Son, the text says, came and died and fulfilled the law for you. And the Spirit is crying out from within you to your heavenly Father. In other words, the Son came to secure your legal status before God, but the Spirit came to try to give you an experience of who you are before God. Now, you can probably tell, I believe that this truth and this passage is vital to our spiritual and mental and emotional, on all the way down to our physical health. To me, this truth has major implications in all of those things in our lives. I mean, in a sense, I feel I could almost say that outside of the gospel, this is one of the most important messages I could ever give to you. Because this truth is so key. And and I think I'm on solid ground when I make a declaration like this because, think about it, if the third person of the triune Godhead has been sent on a specific mission to help us feel that we are God's children, it must be a massive key to life right now. I mean, think about it, a strong sense that God is our Father, thinking that God is your Father, belief in the gospel, um, that's what gets you into eternity. In other words, a strong feeling that God is your Father, it doesn't change anything about eternity. What it changes is your right now, today experience. When we live in an experience of God as our Father, we have rest. We know that our Father will provide, that our Father will lead, that our Father will guide, that our Father will satisfy, that our Father will defend us, that our Father will back us up, that our Father will navigate all the difficulties of our lives and use them together for his ultimate good in our lives. Our Father, in other words, is the most important relationship that we have. Recently, my my daughter, one of my daughters came to me uh, early in the morning Uh, And she was frantic. She was on her way to work, and she was looking for the car keys. She couldn't find the car keys for the shared family vehicle. 
And uh, I was the one who had been driving it the day before. I was the last one to have driven it. So she came to me, Dad, where did you put the keys? And I normally have my specific spot where I put the keys and all of that. So we looked there, then they weren't there. So we started looking everywhere all throughout the house for uh, the keys. And uh, so then I started thinking, because we couldn't find them anywhere, I started thinking, well, where were we? Well, we got home really late last night. I was on a road trip with her. We got home late in the evening. I, I know I had the keys in my hand. I went to the front door. I unlocked the front door. And so I went to the front door, and I opened up the door to look on the outside, and there were the keys just dangling there. Uh, on the outside of the house. You know, any of you guys could have come over all night. You could have just come right in and uh, hung out. To me, that frantic look around the house for the keys, it's similar to how humanity often spends its life. We are desperately trying to find the key to peace and joy and satisfaction. And it's only found in enjoying God as your father, which is only found when you go to the door of Christ. We can look everywhere, but what we need is found in the father. And, and I think that when you learn this truth, when it becomes the practice of your life, you are protected, but so are the people around you. You're protected from looking too much to other people to satisfy things in you that only your Father in heaven can satisfy. And this protects the people in your life from being crushed by the weight of expectations that they could never bear, things that they could never produce and provide for you. And the Spirit is trying to help us think of God like this. He calls out from within us, drawing us to our Father in heaven. My encouragement is that you do not neglect this cry within your heart that is authored and originated by God. Okay, so the passage that we've looked at today, it tells us we're, we're sons, not slaves. It tells us God did all this beautiful stuff to make us into his son, so let's think of ourselves as sons of God. But it also tells us that God wants to help us feel that we are his sons. So what are some ways that we can apply this passage to our lives this week? Well, the first thing that I would say is I would encourage you to search out the work of Christ as revealed in Scripture. Have a constant practice in your life of learning what the Bible says Jesus has done for you. In one sense, this passage or this message that I've given today, it's kind of a message. I could have titled it like this, Study the Bible and Pray. Because in a sense, that's what's going on here. You're looking to see what Jesus has done, coming to the illumination, I'm a son of God, and then responding to what the Spirit is doing and crying out to the Father. That's a prayer word, right? So start, though, first with meditating on what Christ has done in Scripture. Go deeper in understanding what he's done. Second, I tell you to preach the gospel to yourself every single day, of your lives. Paul said in Romans 6 verse 11 that we must reckon ourselves to be just like Jesus is, dead to sin and alive to God. That's something that the gospel has produced in us. At the beginning of your day and all throughout your day, tell yourself who you are in him. The third thing that I would say is 
pray the Lord's Prayer and don't let yourself get past the first words of that prayer until you feel them to be true. He said, our Father, this is how you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's a lot in there right in that first little prayer. You know, so talking to God, God, you are my Father. I'll admit to you that I, I'm struggling to, to see you in that light, but that's who you are. That's what you've been for me. That's what you will be for me. And confessing that before God, let that sink into, germinate into your heart before you move on. And then I would say, pause to consider how you currently feel about God. Some of you might have a journal to write and get your thoughts out, and if you do, I'd, I'd tell you to do that. Write out how you currently feel about God today. Now, what I'm not asking for is a report on what you think the Bible says about who God is. What I'm asking is for you to be in touch with your perceptions of who God is in that moment, even if those perceptions, as you put them out on paper, you realize these are inaccurate. These are not the thoughts of scripture. These are the thoughts perhaps of my emotions or feelings, but I, I'm not in line with what God's word actually says. And some of you might think, am I allowed to do that? Have you ever read the Psalms before? Apparently God can handle that. It's not like if you put down like, God, I'm just having a hard time seeing you as my father. He's gonna say, I can't believe you wrote that. I did not know this until you wrote it. <laughs> he knows what's going on within. So Put it out and begin thinking about how am I misaligned with the truth of God's word. Finally, I would just say, go to your father. The spirit is trying to drive you in that direction, but you've got to yield to the spirit. Don't let the flesh win. Cut off the flesh and pursue your father in heaven. All throughout your day, talk to him, pour out your heart to him, run to him because he loves you.